Changing the face of expertise is the time that we're in. That does not mean that just because someone is a person of color, they make they are a better consultant. What it means is that the brilliance of a black person being at the front of the line for driving strategy by changing words that shift ideas, that create new narratives, that allow for better strategies specifically for social impact will be different when a person like me is at the helm of it, given the types of experiences I've accumulated over the course of my life, both positive and negative. And the value then of the strategies, particularly when they reach back into communities of people that predominantly look like myself, will likely be more accurate than from someone who does not look like me. That is the time we're in. Welcome to the Health Pilots Podcast, presented by the Center for Care Innovations. This podcast is about strengthening the health and well-being of historically underinvested communities. Every episode offers new ideas and practical advice that you can apply today. One of the landmark programs here at the Center for Care Innovations is Catalyst a training program where our participants learn and practice human-centered design to explore strategic challenges within their organizations. We often invite experts from the field to share their insights and discuss their own projects. Listen as our longtime collaborator, Chris Conley, interviews one of our special guests. So I want to welcome everybody to this interview with Xavier Ramey. Xavier, thank you for joining us. Super appreciate you being here. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. And I thought maybe what we could start out with is you just saying a little bit about the man from North Lawndale in Chicago and your background. (laughs) What guy are you (laughs) talking about? (laughs) Well, not your father. But yeah, tell us, give us a little bit about your background and how you've come to do this work and found Justice Informed. Sure. So my name is Xavier Ramey. I'm an entrepreneur and uh, leading a growing social impact consulting firm called Justice Informed, based here in the Chicagoland area. Um, But fortunately, we are blessed to be able to work nationally and increasingly internationally. I'm from the west side of Chicago. Uh, I was just speaking with some of my friends last night about it. And um, it's interesting when you think about, when you constellate the west side of Chicago as an identity marker for a Chicagoan, and it was a room full of um, all African-Americans talking about what is the baton that we're seeking to have passed from generation to generation as it relates to equity and justice and economic enfranchisement and these sorts of things. And it was interesting how it elevated. The West Side is sort of very much an afterthought. People actually often think I am not from the West Side. They assume I'm from the South Side of Chicago because usually when you meet people who are fairly successful or known or something like that, they don't come from the West side, but that's where I'm from. And uh, I rep it very hard. (laughs) I represent, um, I am trying to keep the West side of Chicago on the map. It is what I call the, uh, the ghost town of bad public policy, but it is a beautiful place to be from. Um, I grew up in, in an area called K town and um, you know, public school kid, two parent household, all the things of uh, two brilliant people who came together and decided to get married. And so I grew up in basically a library called my house, (laughs) Uh, just surrounded by books. And one of the things that was really formative for me was that uh, my mother entrusted me to the the school system, but did not trust the school system. But I'm very (laughs) thankful to her for that. Um, She surrounded me with books that uh, they would never have taught me about my own heritage, my own culture instilling in me confidence, but also a linguistic capacity 
to counter what others would say was normal or a historical fact or the way things always have been. Uh, and she was opening my eyes to just how big the world was, but also just how big my people have been. And through that installation of identity, I then entered the world and everything started to kind of <laughs> happen how you hear on TV and in the newspaper. Um, I went to a really, really good high school and uh, I got into DePaul University and studied economics. Um, I ended up in the commodity trading world and was uh, first just a little intern, but then worked my way up to a full commodities trader and helped to co-found actually a, a trading firm, but left that. That world of, of finance really taught me quite a bit about the way of work, but also money. One of the challenges I had was that, you know, I always wanted to give back. I always wanted to sort of see North Lawndale and the West Side be a place of promise versus, as the Chicago Tribune called it, the home of the permanent underclass. But I didn't want to be broke. I didn't want to be poor. And that was like really baked into my mind. Like the best thing you can do when you're growing up in what could be called the hood, so to speak, is leave. That is the way out. You know, the way to grow is to go alone, to leave. And uh, that was not the way my father raised me. Father was a community organizer, an activist, a politician, also an entrepreneur, started a social impact consulting firm called Sustainable Communities and Associates way before it was possible uh, mm -hmm. to have the type of success that we have at Justice Informed. But it did teach me quite a bit because I was always in those meetings. I was always down at City Hall. I was learning about how government works from the age of four. Uh, he took me to yeah, work awesome. almost every other day. I was with my grandma who worked for the county and she was always taking me to work. And I was learning about how meetings are conducted, Robert's Rules of Order, and taking notes during board meetings and proofreading drafts of, of grants that he was submitting for funding. So I kind of just got raised in the world of community and economic development in my house that I grew up in. And so when I got that little economics degree and then I came back to North Lawndale with it to work, I was a little, up, I, I was very frustrated because everything that I had learned in college, it didn't really teach me about how to develop a community like North Lawndale. It taught me how to uh, pirate off of it, how yeah. to profit from Exploit. it. Yeah. And I don't think that my finance teachers would necessarily call it that. But as someone who was the economic externality in a lot of those data sets that we were talking about in class, um, I felt deeply the lack of rigor in the financial calculations and in the inclusive nature of the economic model, something that is literally defined as the allocation of the study of the allocation of scarce resources. And when an entire community does not have scarcity, it has poverty, entrenched generational poverty that is not temporary. It is generational. You need a different economic calculus. And so then I started pushing back against all things like hypercapitalism and started reading more books on socialism and started looking at other economic models and thought about starting a community bank and all that. Man, I was going, <laughs> I was, I had a lot of, a lot of ideas. And the linchpin for me that I realized when I hit my thirties was that my identity up until that point had been shaped by what I was angry about, about what I had grown up in. And now, if you ask me, you know, what is the, what is Justice Informs model and how is that shaped? I'll say it's all about invitation. We try to compel people and I try to compel people out of the way that I see my own identity and, and what I think is humane and love to the world, um, to be the model of whatever you're preaching and talking about and invite others in and hold no responsibility for people who decline your offer. Uh, so when I make the offer to invite someone into an anti-racist way of living, 
they decline, that's okay. We're going to keep building over here. This party's rocking. When we make the offer for someone to consider a more proximate way of living. And so maybe, you know, don't, don't shout so loud that your company should be focused on diversity, equity, inclusion. And then you take those wages and go to some likely all white neighborhood that you self segregated yourself in with those wages. Uh, you know, maybe you want to think about that personal commitment and embodiment at home versus just what you demand at work. But if they don't take us up on the offer, that's okay. And the most important thing that my background has given me was the desire to move my work and the world at the pace of the urgency of my identity. But now I've enjoyed that with the idea that um, love, (laughs) quite honestly, Mm -hmm. uh, is the basis of invitation and it is the power to move things forward. But in that, you also have to love yourself and you have to let go of what made you angry, of the experiences you had that traumatized you, the things that some people would say were tragic, that were actually city planning. It's not tragedy, that's strategy. Right. And you have to to reformulate that into a powerful invitation in the world uh, and believe moving forward that the people who want to accept it are the ones you should be building with. Yeah. One of the places you were speaking, uh, you mentioned, I mean, this, this exact notion, this is not about, oh, it's tragic that this is happening it's tragic. It's societies are designed and we're in constant state of designing societies. And if they can be designed for injustice, they can be designed for justice. That's right. Um, I think that's a really important way to think about it. You heard one of the podcasts. Uh (laughs) I heard it three times. It's very good. I remember that. I remember saying that. Yeah. 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 So let's hit justice because it's in your name. It's the first word in the name of your company. It may be yep. the only company in the U.S. with justice in its name, because yeah. as you say, it makes people uncomfortable. Tell us about the name and what justice actually is. I named it Justice Informed because <laughs> I've worked with a lot of consultants. If you look at any of the big consulting firms, what are their names? They're named after the people who started it. They're named after owners. They're named after people who accumulated the most in terms of identity and the returns to it in terms of financial power and the returns to entrepreneurship. I didn't want to go that route, man. (laughs) I didn't. I remember sitting at my desk. I was working at the University of Chicago at the time. Um, I was leading this new strategy. They brought me in there to sort of define called social innovation and philanthropy. And, you know, I had this kind of just this idea in my chest of, of like, the things that people are, are constantly afraid of, I'm not really afraid of those things. I'm not afraid to say the word justice. I'm not afraid to say social justice. I'm not afraid to say when a person is white. I don't need to whisper when someone is queer or gay. I don't need to, I'm not tiptoeing around identity and I'm not tiptoeing around the mm-hmm. urgency and the power of accurate words. And I wasn't seeing that in my peers. I certainly was not seeing that in the ways in which my employer at the time was moving. And I remember thinking to myself, I say it a lot to myself now, right? You know, most of possibility exists between the limits, those boundary lines of the ambitions and fears of the person who is paying you. And what that person fears, they will ask you to fear. And what that person is ambitious about, they will ask you to do with them. Mm. And so that's a limit on your own life. 
And that's part of the reason why I wanted to jump out onto the skinny branches of entrepreneurship. As one of my business advisors and good friends, Thomas K.R. Stovall always says, the skinny branches of entrepreneurship. I wanted to, to take on the consequences of my truth. And those consequences thus far have been revenues. They've been clients. They've been staff. They've been partners. They've been headaches, hard feedback moments. <laughs> but the joy that I get is that it's not Ramey's strategies. Right. McKinsey, Deloitte, Ernst & Young. You keep naming them. Yeah. Name Bain. Yeah. It's all some person. It's all about this one person. And I was not out to build anything about one person. I wanted to build an umbrella for people who wanted to do work like this. Our mantra is changing the face of expertise. I knew that having worked with those large consulting firms on tons of projects when I was at the United Way, working as a, a program officer, running multi-million dollar portfolios over to, you know, being senior assistant director over at the University of Chicago to some of the pro bono projects. And, you know, I have mayoral appointments for, for civic committees and all this stuff. And you're always around these consultants. You're always around consultants. And they're all under the banner, not the umbrella of their company. And I wanted to build this umbrella. And I wanted it to also, in the name, let people know that we don't care if they don't accept our invitation. So if justice is too hard of a line of a word for you to say, you're probably not our client. Mm -hmm. You're probably not our client. We don't even want to have an exploratory conversation with you. <laughs> when you get to the point where you can say something that has urgency, then maybe you can do something that requires it. Because the work of justice requires urgency. And so it was also a dividing line in the world that I wanted to draw. Finally, I named it Justice Informed because I wanted to transform what could be expected of a company. Many people in the first two years when we existed, they'd come up to me and say, man, I heard about this great, this nonprofit you started. I remember I did this event. I was actually hosting for Chicago Ideas. And it was myself, Devon Franklin, he's an author and a minister, Charlemagne the God from The Breakfast Club, and uh, Pastor Charles Jenkins from Fellowship Baptist uh, Church. And I remember they call us up on stage. I'm actually the MC for the night. And they're introducing me. It's like, we've got Xavier Ramsey of Informed <laughs> Justice, a nonprofit from the south side of Chicago. Oh, my God. How's it like? Oh, Butchered every one of them. <laughs> Richard, every single, like, that's not, my, my name's not Xavier, it's not Ramsey, it's not Informed Justice, it's not from the South, 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 it's not a profit. Like, <laughs> but isn't that the point? Yeah. But isn't that the point? Say more. I want Say more about nearly that. unrecognizable. I want to be I nearly know. unrecognizable. I want our team, I want our mission, I want our work to be the face of it. And in the diversity of who we hire, creates more accurate strategies for the future. Part of the, the, the way that I think about the ways that we work in a consultative way and how this actually seeks to prioritize justice is we work with the power of words. Words are very, very important. Words create ideas in the mind. And those ideas allow for narratives. Narratives that you either believe or don't. But those narratives then allow for strategies. And that's what consultants create. And so if in the minds of a person, they hear the words black, male, knight, 
And the idea that comes to their mind is danger, criminality. Then the narrative that they'll have is a lack of safety. And so the strategy will be policing. But if they hear those words, and if we are good at our job, and we are changing the face of expertise, if we're good at our job and you hear those words, black and male and night, and the idea that comes to your mind is a collective society with an individual person having an individual experience, then the narrative that might come to your mind is neighbor, regardless of trappings, regardless of time of day. And so the strategy may actually be care right. you to engage, to care, exactly. <laughs> these sorts exactly. of things. Yeah. Um, we are trying to change narratives, and we're doing that by being very, very specific about the words that many people have ideas about. And we do that by creating the strategies for our clients. Justice, fundamentally, my belief is that justice is the work of looking historically, presently, and futuristically at the realities of human relationship and how power is organized not just in a moment, but it is organized over time. It is, it is exerted and accumulated throughout time. The notion of the word normal, to have the power of safety underneath the word normal, when something is normal, whoever is attached to that word has safety for the moment. If white skin is considered normal, then that's what you'll see on the cereal boxes and in all the commercials. That's the person that you'll want to represent your company. It's like when I, I remember... <laughs> Even applying for a job, you know, I was in the Future Business Leaders of America Club in high school, and uh, someone from PricewaterhouseCoopers came to our high school and was trying to recruit us for their college track programs. And you know, we'll we'll get you a job, come back every summer, fifty thousand dollars, and these sorts of things. And I was like, oh, this sounds great. And I was top of my accounting class at the time, and uh, I was African American guy. And he came in, he walked around the class, and he was just like, just so y'all know, y'all gonna have to, uh, you're gonna cut these braids off. I was like, what? Like, where did this come from? <laughs> like, I thought we were talking about accounting. You got to cut those braids off. I'm just letting y'all know, black person to black person, you got to cut those braids off. This is a global company. We have clients. When they see something like that, it looks like a thug. You want to get a job? You got to cut that hair. I was 29 years old before I grew my hair this long uh -huh. after that happened. I was 29 years old. It took about 12 years for me to get the professional confidence to feel safe, not looking like what I knew the professional world considered to be normal. Normal is very safe. And our job at Justice Informed is to make sure that the people who are changing the face of expertise, because no one expects a consultant at a large firm or a growing firm or of any repute, for the most part, to mostly look like people of color, to mostly be represented as women to mostly be indigenous or LGBTQ. They expect, for the most part, Chris, somebody looks like you. That's what I'm trying so, to change, man. <clears throat> that's awesome. Can you speak a little bit about this notion of what time we're in? So the Center for Care Innovations and trying to build capacity, understand how to create new systems that dismantle old injustices. I wouldn't say we've been urgent about it. We've cared and tried to move the ball forward. But I think you have a particular perspective on what time we're in and kind of this notion of a first time. Can you say something? Can you share that idea with the... Yeah, um, this dovetails a little bit with what I was just saying that I realize yes. if I don't clear up, people may 
look between the lines and find something that shouldn't even be there. Changing the face of expertise is the time that we're in. That does not mean that just because someone is a person of color, they make, they are a better consultant. What it means is that the brilliance of a black person being at the front of the line for driving strategy by changing words that shift ideas, that create new narratives, that allow for better strategies specifically for social impact will be different when a person like me is at the helm of it, given the types of experiences I've accumulated over the course of my life, both positive and negative. And the value then of the strategies, particularly when they reach back into communities of people that predominantly look like myself, will likely be more accurate than from someone who does not look like me. That is the time we're in. My father tried to start a social impact consulting firm, Sustainable Communities and Associates. As I said, it was not before his time, it was before America's time. Mm-hmm. 70s, 60s, 90s. Oh, 90s. Oh, 90s, 90s and oh. early 2000s. Oh, got it. Yeah. He was trying to do diversity work, inclusion work way, way too soon for white America, mm-hmm. for government as it existed. The challenge we often have, and I, I, I feel this deeply in America, is the moment that we start hitting the minimum bar for social equity, people start patting themselves on the back and expect like everyone should just be like, we're all good now. And also there's a confusion that statutes, that legal statutes change culture when they don't. Legal statutes like the Civil Rights Act, for instance, in that time, the, the Civil Rights Act was highly divisive. It was very much fought against. Uh, the Equal Pay Act of 1979 Why do we have to pay women? If they can work hard, they'll get paid the same if they can do the work. There's always been that dude somewhere saying that kind of stuff. Always something. (laughs) Some guy named, yeah, there's always that dude, man. He's every, he's just everywhere. And he keeps getting born and given the mic every, like, I'm serious, man. It's, it's, um, his time is up. Going back to this notion of fear, oftentimes the pace of change is moving at the pace of the fear of people in power, not the pace of need of people who are unsafe, rather the pace that is allowed through the fragilities of people who are simply uncomfortable. And that is completely, completely improper. And it cannot, it cannot remain this way. And by the continual representing of brilliance that I intend to do, and our team does, I think, skillfully at Justice Informed, Throughout now, Fortune 500 clients, all the way down to small startups, nonprofits, community foundations, corporate foundations, people are going to realize that you didn't have to move at the pace of fear. The time for fear to be a god is over. But that requires that we embrace the radicality of love. That requires that we look more macroscopically at the power of relationship. It requires that we surrender our assumption that individualism is actually normal. And realize that it is not normal, it is encultured. That there are many societies throughout time and throughout the current world, the present day, that do not live as viciously as we live in our major cities, as we fight against one another, as we teach our children to share and then blame them when they don't grow up and compete. This type of a psychosis of community is what creates often the racialized, genderized and other types of marginalized person. It, it creates these divisions later on. It's this, this base question of, if you don't have something, do I lose something by helping you? And do I owe you anything just by virtue of the breath you share on this planet with me at the same time? Do I owe you anything? I would say that we all owe each other quite a bit. 
And I know some folks would say, that sounds like a socialist. But then on the weekends, when they go to give back, they'll say it's charitable. And then when they go back to work so they can take first, they'll say it's back to the competition time. This is why I say psychosis. The ways in which we've developed as a community, particularly in the U.S., is wholly unsustainable for the cultivation of a sustainable, humane human experience. It is a wonderful strategy if you want to accelerate the pace of technological advancement. It is a wonderful strategy if you want to be able to create a society where the, the possibility of massive wealth accumulation is possible. It is fully possible. But doesn't that go back to the whole question of like, what do you, what do you need in life? Like, what do you actually need? Do you need everything you're afraid of not getting? And are some of the things that you're fighting just because you're afraid someone else might get them and you won't? This is like going back to like two-year-olds fighting about what's fair. Right. He got three pieces, she got two, and I got one. We're all eating and none of y'all pay for this food. <laughs> like, like well, it's a community pot. Like, like adults, adults in America, our culture is like what happens before you learn to share, before you learn the power of sharing. And I think part of that is because the ways in which we've constructed the world of work, the ways in which we look at government policy, and the way that we think about our opportunities and obligations to one another are stripped of any type of relational fabric. When Dr. King talks about that like inescapable mutuality, that we are all caught in this inescapable network of mutuality, I think a lot of people would say that man is completely wrong. He is off his rocker. I am not related to some person across town. The west side of Chicago is the west side of Chicago. I live in Lincoln Park. I don't know those people over there. Those animals want to shoot each other. Let them shoot each other. People say stuff like that about people in their own city. Like this sort of a, a rhetoric. And then they send their kids to school. Right? Like, like, then they're like volunteering in North Lawndale on a Saturday. Right. <laughs> like, these right. sorts of things. Like, this is, um, this is never, why we have to be informed by justice. Because people are being yeah. informed by something right now, and it ain't justice. Yeah, I've never thought about it as the psychosis of it and the, the extreme dichotomy between saying, doing, beliefs, mm-hmm. and all of it getting around relationship. All of oh, it, it, not- it goes, Chris, it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than that. Think about the nature. So, so I talk a lot about equity. How many times have you, I mean, we've known each other for, I mean, what, since when I started working at Young Men's Educational Network back in Lawndale. years probably, right? That was probably, man, it was, it was, I think it was like 2009 or 10 that we met. Probably 11, 12 years oh, we've yeah, known each yeah. other. Got it. At that time, I was, a, I was the head of fundraising in my mid-20s. I was learning at that time the types of stories that are required to convince a person to separate themselves from their money to help another person live. That's what fundraising and nonprofits are. That's what we do. We convince people that life can actually be helped with money, but we don't need to fix the root cause right now. Like that's what, that's what I often felt in fundraising. Mm-hmm. But the types of stories that people hear the question of whether that changes their daily lives is very different. So what does it mean when you have to hear the same story of pain and pillage over and over and over and over and over again? When you go from 1992, Rodney King, and then you, you go to Amadou Diallo in 1999, and then you go to, to, to Mike Brown 
in Ferguson in 2014. And then you go to Eric Garner in New York City in 2015. Then you go to a Laquan McDonald in Chicago in 2016. And then you go to a George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 2020. And you have been around, people have been around that entire time. They're like in their 40s now, or they're in their 50s or the 60s or the 70s. They've been around that entire time, and they are still having epiphanies about racial inequity in America. Right. They had a front row seat to this is just the truth. And they are still like, I feel like we need more data. <laughs> that is why I, I think a lot of, about this actually is masochism. It is the, the question of the invitation to pain without changing anything right. that creates it. Right. And I just want to hear the story again. I just want, I want to go to another gala. I want to hear it. I want to hear it one more time. Just, just, just tell me how bad that was. But I'm not going to change the way I literally live my life so that the pain decreases. My cost of learning requires me to see this every single time. It's masochistic to me. Yeah. But I invite those, <laughs> those folks into a more accountable form of relating. That is what equity is, a more accountable form of relating to one another. Talk about that. What do you mean by an accountable relationship? It's a question of who gets to evaluate uh, impact. Uh, <laughs> accountability is all about who gets to evaluate impact. So for instance, let's go to the nonprofit sector again, right? When you have a, a, a program that you create for social good or for cor- like corporations, right? When they create their corporate social responsibility so sorry, strategies, yeah. you know, if you, if you look at the, the UN SDGs, you're talking about environmental and climate change and these sorts of things. And you look at this through the lens of impact. Big question that has to be there is not just what's your strategy. It's who gets to evaluate impact. Who gets to say this was meaningful? And if it's the people who authored the strategy who live across town, it can't work like that, but it has been working like that. Yeah. Accountability okay. requires that you surrender the power of evaluation of a strategy that is supposed to impact people that you may either incidentally or deliberately not live or be proximate to and surrender to them the ability to authorize the validity of that strategy as well as evaluate the outcome of that strategy because it was supposed to impact them. Um. That is an accountable relationship. There has to be the ability to say, hey, this didn't work. And I'm saying it didn't work. Not your grant officers, not your CEO, not the president of the foundation, not the CSR officer, not your uh, marketing team for your your communication strategy for social (laughs) good for corporate outreach. It's the people that it was supposed to engage. But in order to do that, the very way in which these strategies were created would have to actually involve those people throughout the entire life cycle of the process of the strategy from cultivation of ideas to testing of ideas to actually demonstration and and execution of the strategy over to the evaluation portion. And that is not often what happens. Yeah, Accountability requires that someone else be able to say, "This this didn't hit the mark. Like any relationship, you know? If I'm dating someone, if I'm married to somebody and, you know, I'm cooking them dinner and they don't have the right to say, you know, this wasn't that tasty. And I'm just sitting there like, wasn't it good? Wasn't it tasty? Right. It was tasty. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It was, it was very, very, very tasty person who pays the rent or something like that. Like, that's not a relationship. That's not yeah. accountability. Yeah. I have to be open to, though I did, might have done all this work, to be open to someone saying, it was not necessarily for naught, but it was not for all. Yeah, nice. I want to be conscious of your time, but I think the, the, what you just said about accountable, and we use different words in our program, but 
engaging, even in, you know, the type of work we did started out way back saying user-centered research, right? We're going to go and do interviews, which have the aim of empathy and understanding, but it never went so far as inviting them into the problem definition, Hmm. the solution creation, and the evaluation of the solution. And I think that point you're making exactly now is, is where the field needs to go. It's where I've come, and it's where we hope the teams, the catalyst teams that are working with the Center for Care Innovation, realize that that's the issue here is you're accountable to the people you're designing with and for. You have to invite them into that. And there's so many things in, in organizations that make that challenging, even beyond the structural racism. And it's that people want to be efficient and have the right answer. And they believe in expertise is the person with the <laughs> highest rank. And all you know it, that's all existing in every organization. And so yep. as our teams move forward, this is a very unfair question to ask you in terms of what advice would you give them? What would you say beyond what you've already said that they should take to heart about incorporating, starting to incorporate and being aware of the justice element in their work? Yeah. Totally unfair question. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a, that's a totally fair question, man. Mm. Justice requires that you ask of yourself what needs to be repaired, mm. what needs to be acknowledged in order for relationships to be mended so that we can move forward together. It requires, that's why I said it's a historical look about what is the opportunity in the present so that we can look futuristically together. One of the things that mm. I always invite any organization into, because Chris, you're absolutely right. You know, organizations are dynamic. People are constantly moving in and out of them. One of the long-term challenges of any strategy for equity is the the natural churn of people coming in and out. Equity work is very burdensome. It is very mentally, emotionally, and psychologically taxing. It is also something that is not typically taught in school side-by-side with any type of vocational theory. Um, so you have to go to like social work school, usually to learn about how to do this. You have to get a degree in sociology to learn about what's even to be done and why it's happening. Like I was in economics. I never learned any of that. I never learned right. anything about injustice getting my economics degree, except for a couple of electives. I will, I will give them that. I took a, a class on the economics of gender. That was an elective. Mm. And uh, I learned a lot about <laughs> systemic injustice uh, as it relates to specifically women. But the reality is, is that because these things aren't required, right? Like equity is an option. Like it's totally a choice to do this stuff nowadays. You know, all of the Fortune 500s were literally built agnostic at best to the work of inclusion. Agnostic at best. When you look at the realities of the definitions that guide the opportunities for organizations to engage in the work of equity, oftentimes the very founding documents are counter to what is required for equity. Shareholder primacy is completely counter yep. to, to the notion of equity. When you're talking about nonprofits being set up, always being set up at the behest of the for-profit world, soliciting donations and these sorts of things while not having any type of apparatus in the for-profit world to ensure that they're not just covering financial costs, but that they're covering their social costs. Yeah. This is why we even have the SDGs, because companies don't cover their social costs as they're doing their accounting for financial costs. 
And then nonprofits and NGOs are set up to prop up what government is not able to do as companies continue to devalue and destroy the power of government through their lobbying or government offices or whatnot. Like this is the, this vicious cycle that is completely unchecked. And when you look at this question of what can an organization do for justice, they have to first ask themselves, is this actually happening? And do I believe it? Right. Is it true? Is it valid? When we look at harm and how do I feel? I often ask our clients, it's like, how do you feel when a solution for harm has to be specific? How do you feel when a program is set up at your company or your organization specifically to hire people of color? Specifically just people of color. Mm-hmm. How do you feel 100%. when the gender pay equity audit is undergone and it's supposed to specifically go about raising the wages of people who identify as women? How do you feel, guys? How do you feel? I'm not asking whether you agree. I'm asking about that physiological response of you as a two-year-old, like, well, they got three and I got two and that's not fair. That's what I'm asking about because that's what's going to shut down this agenda in the meeting. That's what fragility is. That's what the zero-sum game thing is. And you got to ask yourself as an organization, not just what are we going to do, how do we feel about the doing of equity? Mm. Mm. How do we literally feel about it? And let's confront that before we start putting stuff on paper and holding people accountable. But in terms of frameworks, you know, I always, you know, I think if you go on our website at Justice Informed, you'll see the DEI spectrum of engagement. And I encourage everyone to consider oh, what this nice. may mean in terms of the ways in which you architect a strategy to move forward for equity. Um, but it really starts with where a lot of people stop, growing and understanding. These DEI trainings and equity trainings and, you know, unconscious bias trainings, 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 so many trainings. You know, LinkedIn Learning has, I think it was 14,000 online courses right now on LinkedIn Those are Learning. all that's popping up on, on my feed right now are equity. <laughs> everybody's got a course, man. Everybody's, everybody's, everybody's teaching how many folks are doing. Everybody's right. teaching how many folks are doing. But the first work is growing and understanding. I will not fight that. I will not argue against that. You have to understand what we're facing. Then you have to see whether you actually feel okay about what it may require of you. Then you have to ask yourself, are you okay with the people who are most unsafe if this work isn't done are more important than you, regardless of how uncomfortable you may feel doing it? Then you move from from that understanding to growing consensus in your organization. A lot of people don't agree with the... They'll agree with the direction. For instance, anti-racism is a far more urgent type of work as it relates to equity than traditional diversity, equity, inclusion. It requires a different physiological sense of normal to even engage in it. Confronting demilitarization, hypercapitalism, and white supremacy head on. Those are the three pillars of anti-racist theory. Even using that language in the workplace can be polarizing. Demilitarization. What are you talking about? Confronting white supremacy. There's no hoods and nooses here. We're great people. I'm not saying whether you're nice. I'm asking whether you're effective at equity. (laughs) That's right. Sure. But you see where you can get towards this direction called equity and at what pace together, given who you've got in this room and establish consensus there. Once you've got consensus, then you can start doing the work of what we Mm. call rooting. R-O-T-I-N-G, you're rooting. You're looking at the practices and the policies. You're looking at your operating agreements. You're looking at your investment policies. You're looking at your employee manual. You're looking at your hiring and firing strategies. You're looking at your onboarding strategy. You're looking at the things that involve people 
that are codified into practice and policy. And you're considering mm. what of what we have on paper actually speaks to the work of restoration for harms done, protection for people who are societally unsafe, even if they are internally having more opportunity. And how are we then ensuring that that is inculcated into the way in which we do our work writ large, that this is not an initiative, this is a lens by which we view our impact in the world, the way in which we view our operational efficiency, our financial stability, et cetera. And if you can get done, you can move powerfully into that work of rooting, then we can start talking about accountability. I'll say this. I mean, we've had, you know, 30, 40 clients over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. maybe one or two ever step into the work of actual accountability. That's not a knock on our clients. It's just the reality of people decline the invitation. Accountability means you look at everything you do as an organization and you say, how is this being accountable to persons who hold minoritized and marginalized identities? How is this accountable to them? That goes back to the question of authorship, of strategy, authorization for execution of a strategy, inclusion, on a continual basis, financial sustainability, the ability to own the means of production by people who are minoritized and marginalized, not just those who, like me, founded a company. At Justice Informed, we have a cap on how much I can make. It's no more than five times the lowest paid worker. One of the hardest things about that is that it's hard to hire people in the marketplace when I'm telling them there's a ceiling on your base salary. And it's tied to this question of what do people actually need? Now, everybody's life situations are different. But at Justice Informed, that means that our wages are capped at a quarter million dollars. Yeah. I don't know what the heck I would need in this world to need $250,000. I know some people feel like they couldn't wake up without stress without it. I'm not even halfway there to quarter million dollars. <laughs> like, but I look at my life and I say, this is enough. Yeah. This is enough. This is enough to stand in class solidarity with my team, just as they stand in racial solidarity with me. It's enough. It's enough. That's accountability. Awesome. Xavier, I know I could both listen and ask you questions for the rest of the evening, but we don't have a tasty beverage in our hand. (laughs) I got some stale coffee for this morning. I mean, I could, you know, it's it's a little... A muffin. A treat. A muffin. <laughs> I wanna I wanna thank you not only for doing this interview, but for the work and the leadership you are doing, the minds you're changing, the narratives you're changing, the face of expertise that you're changing. You and I both know how necessary it is. You I feel a lot of shame when I speak with you about how little I'm doing. And that I think that's a good thing because it gets me back on the on taking action and making sure I'm I'm helping other people understand this, living it in my own life. So I just want to again thank you deeply for our relationship, the work you're doing, and the interview you've, you've so graciously had. Oh, and I wanted to mention that you're uh, that we'll be making a donation to the young. Young Chicago authors? Young Chicago authors. Sorry, I forgot the Chicago in the middle. So on your request, uh, obviously, but it's it's an organization that you may be a a leader in or on the board, but can you just tell people? They they taught me how to speak, man. I hear it. I went and made, I did my research on who that organization is, and I can hear their importance in helping people tell their story 
people who tell their story, encouraging others to tell their story, and by doing so, learning about who they may become, who they want to become, and then becoming that. So super, super inspiring organization in the arts for youth in Chicago. That's so right. I started in Young Chicago Authors when I was a kid. I was 15 <laughs> oh, years no. old. And, you know, they got me because they said they would give me a $2,000 college scholarship if I came every Saturday for three years. <laughs> so I was like, I'm in, it's scholarship. But what, what was transformative was they taught me how to and gave me space to write a hell of a lot of bad poetry. Yeah. And <laughs> notebook after takes. notebook of bleeding heart teenager poetry, um, <laughs> <laughs> observational humor poetry, prose pieces that were way too long to ever go to print, you know, rap verses that I never, ever would have put on a, <laughs> on a, on a tape. And they encouraged me, they encouraged me to keep talking, keep speaking, keep thinking about who you are, put it on paper and get up on that stage. They were the ones who put me up on a stage uh, at an open mic and said, all right, dead yeah. little notebook, like get up on that stage and, and go say what you feel. And in a room full of other kids your age and they're clapping. And then next thing you know, we're doing poetry slams and uh, we're at, you know, citywide competitions. And then we're at national competitions and I'm meeting all these young people from around the United States and they're all sharing their story. And I'm, I'm quickly wow. learning how big the world is. And it's mostly youth of color. And I've been on the journey with YCA since the year, I want to say 2000, 2001. And now, you know, I've been on the board for some time now as well. We just had a big shakeup. You, it's all. It was all in the news. Challenges around equity, these sorts of things, safe and, 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 yeah. and safe spaces, and these sorts of yeah. things. We don't hide that. But going through a really important transformation, a full reorganization of the board of directors and, and and employment policies, all this work that I was just talking about, it is for me to do as well. I'm not done with any of it. And YCA, I think, is a great example of what giving a kid a microphone. <laughs> Changing the face of expertise looks yeah. like when you yeah. give it to, you know, a 14-year-old kid from Lawndale. So I'm glad that, you know, whatever y'all were going to give to me, y'all give over to them. Thank you. Um, yeah, so awesome. I appreciate that. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Xavier. Appreciate you. For sure. Thanks, Chris. Thanks.